2: You're listening to The Sound of London, this is Londonist Out Loud, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this episode hinges on a particular term that I kept hearing every time we talked about the story of London and its history and I decided that it was about time we put some flesh on the bones of that term. So this week on the show we're going to be investigating the rookeries of London. Hey baby let me take you
1: down so we'll play some strange sights and the sound you ain't never seen the light before just a through from your front. No. Oh.
2: Raise my voice just enough we can get a bit of an echo going on here from the barrel vaulted ceilings of the crypt in which you find us if this introduction seems slightly disjointed it's because i'm trying to put from my mind the fact that about uh, two meters behind me is a pile of coffins and i mean a pile of full coffins if I turn around here, I'm going to turn away from Sarah Wise just for a second. Behind me is the open door to the vault of Mr. John Allport, 1807, and a pile of coffins, one of which may indeed contain Mr. John Allport. And uh, depending on how things go, he may appear as a surprise guest. For now, Sarah Wise. Hello. How's that for an introduction? Excellent. <laughs> one point to you for not being dead.
3: <laughs> not yet. Not
2: <laughs> yet. Uh, This is eerie. To our left, we've got a very realistic Jesus on the crucifix, realistic in the sense of it being life-size, and he being emaciated and crucified. There's a golden crucifix on an altar, and the whole place is in a state of glorious disrepair. We're in the vaults of St. Leonard's in Shoreditch. Sarah Wise, why have you brought us here?
3: Well, it's one of the few surviving buildings that were around at the time of the old Nickel Slum, about which I'm, rather sadly, a bit of an expert. I trained as a journalist, and I guess I'm always after a scoop, even if that scoop's 200, 150, 100 years old. I'm always trying to find the stories that haven't yet been told, which are hidden away in the archives. And the really good news is that our British archives, whether they're local or nationally held, are absolutely jam-packed with documentation, just crying out for people to get in there and start leafing through, because all these uh, people who, you know, they have left traces of themselves. And I just think it's intellectually and emotionally really satisfying to to try and tell stories that haven't been told from before from people who maybe haven't sort of been heard since they died.
2: What sort of journalism did you do, do you do?
3: Well, I was um, a magazine and newspaper production person, so that's the sub-editor, that's the person who takes all the jokes out, folks, um, and proofreader, just getting things onto the page. Um, and then I sort of left, when I left that, I did a bit of features writing, quite a lot of arts arts and architecture writing, uh, mainly for The Guardian. And then I went back to school. I did a part-time master's at Birkbeck College, University of London, um, I only did it for fun, I did it for pleasure, but I, it completely changed my life. And um, the subject of my first two books occurred as a result of doing an essay on that course. In 1995, just a few yards from here, we took a wrong turning off Bethnal Green Road and drove into this glorious new estate, the Boundary Estate. And it instantly uh, set me thinking about the whole area, and eventually it led to my first two books. So all oh, a series of really happy accidents is how my my work came about
2: and a great testament to Birkbeck by the sounds of it
3: yes I think so <laughs> mind you I keep getting begging letters from them now now that it's all gone privatized but uh, <laughs> one didn't make much money out of one's books so I can't uh, yeah I can't contribute <laughs> I, sh-
2: I should say by the way you're going to be hearing uh, crunching and grinding noises and, and footsteps dragging across the concrete in the background this is not Mr John Allport. uh this is Well, now, Sarah Wise looks disappointed.
3: Yeah, I am. It's a couple of really nice removals, chaps, because the vicar of St Leonard's has stuffed his crypt, not just full of bodies, but full of some absolutely glorious old furniture that is currently being shifted about. Um, So it's not not the dead walk-in, it's uh, removal
2: chaps. This reminds me a little bit of those farming auctions where they'll parade the beast before you. We've got a a lovely two-door dresser coming past here. Looks like it might be walnut, perhaps... Some nice inlaid details there. We'll we'll keep the updates coming as to what's available for you, listening. I wanted to talk to you in particular because this word rookery that crops up particularly in connection, I guess, with uh, Dickensian themes. Rookeries often get a mention. But I I realise that we've never really said too much about them. I think we know that they're places where poor people lived uh, all on top of each other. That's about it, though. And I wanted to get you on and, and find out what you've learned about them and perhaps what we might not know about them?
3: Well, across the whole of the last, uh, well, the 19th century, um, dotted throughout London, not just the East End, it's important to say, there were lots and lots of areas that we know as slums also known as rookeries where old decaying uh, houses have been sort of colonized by people who simply couldn't afford to live anywhere else so classically and the one i wrote about here is is the old the old nickel but you also had the mint area down in uh, down in southwark back then you had st giles just of what is now new oxford street that was a particularly bad one further out west you had notting Dale, also known as the Piggeries, so that's sort of quite far out. So dotted all over London, you had these uh, terrible areas, and fiction writers such as Dickens painted amazing pictures of it. So in Oliver Twist alone, you've got Jacob's Island in Bermondsey, you've got... um, really unpleasant parts of bethnal green you've got saffron hill come field lane but it's interesting that not until the end of the 19th century do you get that real emergence of an east west polarity if you look at any of the fiction and the non-fiction throughout the 19th century till about the 1870s you've, you've got these uh, slums east south north west of london and then gradually they start to get erased by a variety of uh, so-called metropolitan improvements which tended to be the driving through of huge great new roads which were always sited on top of uh, rotten cheap old property because obviously that's the cheapest to buy up. Um, so obviously you've got things like uh, Shaftesbury Avenue, Charing Cross Avenue, Charing Cross Road, New Oxford Street, Commercial Street, Commercial Road. All these. Uh, Victoria Street went through the Devil's Acre slum just behind Westminster Abbey. So across the century, from about the late eighteen thirties, you get the piecemeal eradication of lots of uh, very intense congested slum areas. That's less the case in the east, and so. As I say, as the century starts to end, the East End starts to become synonymous with uh, huge uh, tracts of really poor quality housing, which of course is the only the housing that the the poor and the poor could afford.
2: There's a lot to unpack in all of that. Goodness me, where to start? Oh, the, the one that jumped out at me first was the idea of somewhere called Nottingdale, mm. which seems like a companion to Notting Hill. That's
3: right. It's, it was, uh, you know, um, Notting Hill is right on top of the big hill that Labrick Grove goes over. Go down the other end and you're in Nottingdale. And, and today it's all where sort of Latimer Road is, uh, I think Treadgold Street. And um, even when I went to school in Wood Lane and uh, even even then in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, is still sort of an area of quite a lot of comparative deprivation. Really?
2: Well, Labbrook Grove didn't used to be the flash place it is now.
3: Absolutely not. I mean...
2: People in, I guess, middle age would remember paying peppercorn rents in Labbrook Grove still.
3: Definitely. No, absolutely. Um, Well, even when I I, I sort of moved there when I first left home, and it was still totally affordable. But that's true of so much of West London. It's kind of been transformed out of all recognition. All the sort of totally affordable, slightly down-home parts of West London are just, you know, going for multi-million pounds
2: well okay so that actually begs a different question than the one i was going to ask i suppose and we'll maybe expand on some of those places particularly the devil's acre we need to know more about that place (laughs) with your eye on the tides of how affordability has worked i don't know whether it's fair to bring in the word gentrification it sounds like a different sort of process maybe improvement maybe just complete destruction and reinvention from what you're saying do you think that there is a chance that the for example the east and west could flip is it possible that uh, an area which has always been known for being the cheap poor bit of town is there any chance it could reverse its fortunes
3: well um where we're sitting now shoreditch Bethnal green uh, is completely unaffordable i mean this bound the boundary street estate opened in 1900 replacing in its entirety uh, acre for acre the old nickel slum and it's an absolute it was london's First sizable council estate. It's not true to say it's the first council housing. There were a little bit of piecemeal attempts done earlier, but it's first London's first significant council estate um, in the late nineties. Gradually, started some of it was started to be sold off onto the open market, and so now a, a studio flat on Boundary Street itself going for about half a million, three quarters of a million pounds, so, which is completely not in the spirit of which you know the London County council put up this fantastic new estate um I, well after brexit who knows what's going to happen property wise i mean everything's gone up in the air as of the 23rd of june so uh, i don't know perhaps perhaps it might all become affordable again
2: well i was reading something today that and the idea was that people don't really pay too much attention to geopolitical stuff when buying their house they you know have i got a deposit yes uh, have I found the house I want? Yes, off we go. Yeah.
3: On the other hand, if if it's true that uh, mega corporations are just going to pull their staff en masse. Uh, From London and situate them in continental cities, then that could just be the sort of like first unraveling of the whole thread. Really wouldn't like to predict. I think we're into really kind of futurology, is particularly dangerous at this time.
2: We're very conscious of various funds and investment vehicles buying up property around London. Was there anything like that going on in the period when these rookeries existed?
3: There there sort of was. one of the things I discovered when researching the old nickel slum and it holds true for us all these slums that I mentioned across uh, across London one of the ways in which the estates of deceased people kept on and on making money one of the best investments you could possibly make was in slum property because the uh, inspection and improvement of these Terrible. I mean, lethal. Lodgings um, were so lax. A landlord would need to make very few repairs until sort of forced through the courts, which very rarely happens. And and the, and the and the, um, the amount that you could make. Um, just by packing, say, a house down in Old Nickel Street, for example, had 10 rooms that were home to 90 people. You pack people in, you make absolutely no repairs, uh, and um, one late 19th century evening newspaper uh, suggested that profits of 150% per annum were being made. By landlords, there was this kind of ex- attenuated chain of property ownership. So often, lords and ladies, at the Church of England—I'm ashamed to say—here uh, sitting here in the basement of St. Leonard's—all sorts of people who should have known better were making an absolute fortune out of being slum lords. But they managed to disguise themselves because they would hand over the running of their leases down to agents, and so it whenever people tried to find out who is responsible for this dreadful house where the ceiling has fallen in and killed two children it was very hard to find out who was actually the real owner if you were lucky and several journalists got onto this, particularly from the Daily Telegraph funnily enough um, trying to find out who is responsible for this lethal property they might get as far as the agent they'd have to dig very very hard to find out for example whether it was Lady this or Lord that one of the very worst examples, utterly notorious was uh, the Duke of Northampton and his holdings up in Clerkenwell, replaced uh, in its entirety by that lovely Peabody estate that's there now. There's a lot of money to be made, but as the century came to an end, you had this cacophony of people who weren't going to take this anymore you had political radicals you had many people from the churches investigating you had really committed journalists you had all sorts of philanthropists all just starting to get together and saying this housing situation is absolutely not good enough we have got to change it and when in 1889 london at long last gets its first unitary authority the london county council they asked londoners to suggest what areas are so bad that we need urgently to deal with them and they had something like 150 different places named throughout London by members of the public of which they selected 31 for serious uh, urgent repair and or demolition and 17 of those 31 were actually in the East End and the most important one, as I've said, turned out to be the Old nickel, hence the Boundary Street Estate
2: it would be interesting to develop that idea of what life was like in one of those estates. But I, I wonder, just on the a, on a macro picture there, and we've reflected this in previous episodes, that there was this big move in the late Victorian period towards general improvement, improving the lot, particularly of poorer people. You're the person to ask, why? Why did it suddenly become the case that uh, people were interested in looking after the poorer in society? <laughs>
3: Well, more, more than one there's more than one answer to that. On the one hand, you did have, from let's say 1880, a massive resurgence in left-wing politics, um, better organised um, than it had previously been since, let's say, 1848, and then and, the, and the collapse of Chartism. The left, as ever, always in disarray, always arguing with each other. But you did actually get them for once, starting to sing from a similar song sheet. And you, and when the London County Council came into being in 1889, its first elections were overwhelmingly um, in a landslide for what was loosely termed the Progressive Party. So that's the radical wing of the Liberals, influenced by socialism uh, of which marxism is only one small form other other types of socialism are and were available again you have this marvelous exposé being done by a huge range of very committed ju- journalists i think novelists too really played their part in bringing home the awfulness. Arthur Morrison's Child of the Jago is possibly the most powerful novel in the slum genre, all of whom I think can trace their inspiration back to the publication, again, from 1889, key date, Charles Booth's Poverty Map, and he's accompanying 17 volumes, uh, Life and Labour of the People in London. So you get this extraordinarily well-written, thoroughly researched uh, colourful and yet yeah, not emotional, I don't mean that, but sympathetic view of life on the ground, how the very worst excesses of capitalism play out in ordinary people's lives. So that's the unemployed, the chronically ill, the elderly, and perhaps most distressing of all children. Yeah.
2: But these political shifts and the literature that you're talking about, these, tell me if I'm wrong, these must have been appealing to the educated upper classes because if I I might be completely wrong about this we know that women didn't get the vote until the early 20th century but I'm reasonably certain that there was a large portion of the impoverished part of society in general that didn't have the franchise
3: that's absolutely right um middle uh, the middle and lower middle classes obviously were able to lead the charge because they had, they had you know, access to power, access to having their voice heard so you had an increasingly sympathetic tier of middle, upper and lower middle class people fighting these campaigns but one of the things I think that was so cheering and one of the reasons that I think let's say 1914 the outbreak of World War I you do have a really rather different Britain than you have in 1880 is a, br- a series of bridges that were able to be built between Well-disposed upper and middle class people and working men and women. So what you get is the increasing democratisation of such things as the welfare administration, thanks to... A number of campaigners, you start to get working men and women coming forward, obviously they haven't got a lot of spare time because they have to work, but coming forward in such things as how workhouses are run, for example, how relief welfare payments that are given in your own home, how those are uh, spent. So it isn't one class sort of just deciding, making these decisions for, for another class. You, you start to get them harmonising. You see that particularly in education. Women starting to be elected from a very early years onto the London school boards. You see a huge unrolling of programmes of free uh, medical inspection and help for school children. Where we're sitting actually, one of the most innovative schemes... Um, Lady Jeanne as she was known, a West End philanthropist. She starts out just around the corner in the old nickel school. She with her own money she starts giving free breakfasts and lunch to children who are literally, literally starving. And she starts giving them clothing. And women like her start off as charity workers, and then many of them they they cross over over about fifteen years into what is starting to be called social science and so they start doing they stop doing it from a point of view of charity and they start to make it into a statutory duty particularly with regard to children particularly with regard to women and so you, you start to see certain sections of the very poor slowly being lifted out and being given well for want of a better word state assistance that they are now entitled to so in 1906 you get old age pensions coming in which is a massive help that helps to take a huge section of the poor out of poverty or at least alleviate it I've mentioned free school dinners that really really did help children and you start to see the better classification and access to free care of the chronically ill or the chronically disabled so it really was a kind of really happy combination of what the well-intentioned wealthy, the increasingly literate and educated and curious working and lower middle class. And I do have to say... When the big changes came with uh, Lloyd George's 1906 People's Budget, where you really start to see the foundations of what we recognise as a welfare state being put in place, one of the reasons he's able to push this through is because people were able to argue now, using statistics, using investigation, that the countries that are taking care of their population are actually starting to outperform Britain. Uh, namely germany if you have a workforce let's just limit it to working men who are ill in a terrible physical shape their housing is awful they're underfed they're getting every disease that's going you can't keep your factories running efficiently and you're, you certainly can't get a decent army together um, they had a real shock during the Boer Wars when they tried to recruit working men. The amount of working class men they had to turn away because their health was absolutely shattered because of the appalling poverty they were enduring. You look across to Germany that's really starting to get itself together in terms of housing, uh, in terms of access to health care. And so I'm afraid a lot of the, the good changes that came about was simply because uh, they wanted a, a, a better functioning industrial war, war machine, which isn't very charitable at all.
2: No, and up until that point, I was very excited by what you said. I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about Freud, and I was contemplating the undoing of that sense of it being cool to be kind, and what seems to me to be a deterioration into uh, consumerism and feeding the self and all of that stuff that has been the hallmark of the late 20th century, I guess. And it just sounded like, you know, we've had this amazing blooming of technological advance in the 20th and into the 21st century, and it just sounded like socially that must have been a comparably very exciting time to be around.
3: Absolutely right. And it, well, I, the other thing I could have mentioned is that things did generally get better financially because as, as i've mentioned from 1870 you have uh, the, the education of the working classes and so what you get is a, a huge rise in certainly in london and how, how it plays out in non-urban areas i'm not quite so sure you get a rise in better jobs uh, which obviously pay more so that's another way in which people are starting to be lifted out of poverty i mean classically in the mid-1880s, you're a teenage girl, maybe you're 14. What are, what are the best options open to you? They're standing behind a bar for 15 hours a day, earning absolutely nothing uh, on your feet and in terrible
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online
1: Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
3: Circumstances, or if you're lucky, in one of the better quality shops, 20 years later, if you've done pretty well at board school, you can start to, to get into the sort of pink-collar ghetto that's emerging. So typists, stenographers, lady clerks, uh, teaching. Um, so you are starting to get lower-middle-class jobs um, expanding and, and taking in a lot of uh, pe- you know people whose parents would have been perhaps street traders. You're starting to get sit-down desk jobs which pay better.
2: I'm suddenly thrilled with fear, because some of the stuff you were describing there, it sounds to me as though we are regressing towards, if anything. If we think about the rise in multiple occupancy, the inability of people to afford places that are any good, the gradual denationalisation of the health service, things like that, I mean, there's, there's no doubt we're a long way from rookeries, but it sounds as though we're heading towards rather than away from
3: Not one to plug anything that Mr Murdoch does, but just earlier this week on Sky, there was a very, very good report. The new slums, a camera crew and reporters going around certain parts of uh, now suburban East London and the absolutely appalling conditions that are coming back now. It's particularly horrific for me uh, because, of course, you think you're writing a book about the past, about history, and blow me down... You can see all this stuff coming back again. My own personal politics, with which your listeners may not agree, is that if capitalism doesn't work for anyone but a small percentage, you cannot be surprised that, that, that certain phenomena return, you know, back from the dead, uh, come back uh, to haunt us. And, and what upsets me most is that we've been here, we conquered it. We very slowly and not entirely satisfactorily got a lot of it sorted. We know what works, we know what doesn't work. So, why are we sleepwalking back into, I mean, dreadful, chronic injustice? I just, I mean, it makes me angry. But anyway, I'll be not tub thump anymore. <laughs>
2: <laughs> why not? No, I always think that uh, who better than a an historian actually to get some perspective on? Well,
3: right wing historians are available. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we often get accused of being uh, uh, very, very left-wing on this show. Let's come back to Rickeries. though. We've travelled a long way from Rickeries. The Devil's Acre sounds ah, fascinating. Yes.
3: It was just a nickname, and I don't think it really... I'm not sure, it actually. Oh, what, a, what a nickname. Isn't it? It's a great one. And it's, it's slap bang up against um, Westminster Abbey, so uh, even more resonant for that. Yes,
2: well, Now, Hang on, how did this come about? Because if Galliard Homes was putting together a new development, they yeah. wouldn't call it the Devil's Acre.
3: I should do. I'd buy one, um, if I could afford it. Um... What can I say? Oh, well, actually, uh, listeners, you may wish to find quite easily uh, Gustave Doré, one of his fantastic illustrations. He he went wandering around the Devil's Acre, and I think you'll easily find online his take on it. Just your classic um, rotting... Late 17th century houses that were probably fit for purpose once, but uh, over the centuries it de- deteriorated. And obviously, um, if you're poor, that's all you can afford. Uh, massive overcrowding, because, of course, the more you pack together, the cheaper your collective rent is. And so in the 18- 1840s, it was one of the most notorious sites. There were many, but that was one of them. And the answer is, what do you do? How do you get rid of this? Two things. You build something new called Victoria Street. Victoria Street is one of London's... I love these streets. They're completely made up. (laughs) They don't follow any particular natural line at all. So you bulldoze this brand-new, very broad street, and it connects Victoria right through to the Houses of Parliament. And one of the happy side effects is that you, at a stroke you demolish lots and lots of really rotten, cheap, nasty property. So, problem solved, isn't it? You, you, you demolish a slum, no more slum. Of course, people very, very quickly spotted, well, actually, all you've done is you've made a couple of thousand people pack even tighter into the remaining stumps of horrific lanes and alleys. You haven't solved the problem at all. You've made it worse. The same thing happened all over London. Uh, they put these fantastic new streets in. Farringdon Road at the same time took out hundreds and hundreds of nasty little houses uh, in Clerkenwell. But all you get is people sort of packing ever tighter uh, in, 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 in a, around. Yeah.
2: I was sort of expecting that there would be some sort of solution reached but no that's that's it that's the resting point
3: well what you get in the 1840s is the start of the large-scale philanthropic housing companies now these were charitable bodies but they, they were, their sort of nickname was the five percent philanthropists so the people were the wealthy people who subscribed to these companies um, from about 1844 did expect a return on their rental so you get I mean down at Streatham Street near TUC house you get one of the very very first of these philanthropic blocks Um, they look quite cute to us today but I think they were viewed by the poor as kind of barracks and of course when you put a block like that up up, and it's run by (laughs) stony-hearted philanthropists. There's all these rules and regulations. So lots of poor people naturally rule themselves out because they did want their children to be able to kick a ball around. They did want to be able to have their washing out. So you get the start in the 40s and 50s of philanthropic blocks, which did their best. But of course, if you make, I don't know, 1,500 people homeless, and you put up a block that houses 150 people, you've still got a massive uh, load of people who, who have not been rehoused. And rehousing, the issue of rehousing, dogged redevelopment for about 30 years, really, until the LCC came along in 1889. Fantastic quote from um, a vicar. I see a vicar. Was he a bishop? Whenever he's trundling along New Oxford Street, which opened in the late 1840s, and that was bulldozed right the way through the St Giles rookery, he said, whenever I'm trundling along this street, I cannot help but think about the poor people who got turfed out who once lived on this spot and aren't here now what on earth have we done so a lot of people thought well this metropolitan improvement malarkey actually it's not making any improvement for many people at all should we
2: talk about life and maybe St Giles Rookery is a good one I know you're writing about that at the moment you mentioned 90 people I think in a 10 room place what was life like in that room
3: An awful lot of people kept themselves out of their room by by street life. One of the things that shocked middle-class observers, including Charles Booth, was the amount of life that took place in poor districts out on the streets... If you had a revolting home like that, the last place you wanted to be was at your home apart from when you were sleeping. And so people, working-class people was notable by being out and about. And the other thing that you did, which I think quite rightly horrified, including a local magistrate down at Worship Street Magistrates Court, men and women, actually... He piled into the pub. The gin palaces were brightly lit, they were warm, they were cosy, they were comparatively clean, you had lovely plate glass, you had gas jet chandeliers, and one of the horrors, particularly the new LCC had, which did have a big anti-drink temperance wing among uh, among its administrators, was that if you have such revolting housing, you're driving people into the hands of the publicans. And many people started to make the connection between alcoholism or the working classes spending a hell of a lot of their income on drink. A local magistrate just down at Worship Street Magistrate's Court, he made that connection. He completely got it. How lovely a pub would seem in comparison to your verminous home so many of the first intake the big progressive wing at the london county council they were also what was known as temperance campaigners very seriously anti-drink and so i think that gave urgency to their desire to create homes social housing so so that people would want to stay at home you know because it's a nice place to be in comparison to the pub and when the london county council bought up the old nickel In its entirety, two things held them up for a very long time. The Church of England, would you believe it, held out for ages to get the highest compensation they could. I'm glad to say they didn't manage it, but they caused a lot of trouble to the LCC. And the other people who caused trouble um, were the various um, brewing companies um, who tried to extort really high amounts uh, from the LCC in order to give up their licences because the LCC was determined that the this, estate this was going to be dry. There'd been, I think, 15 pubs in this very small area and then immediately surrounding it, up to a hundred other pubs so the people at the LCC thought well we kind of want that to not be the case so they spent an awful lot of money buying out pub licenses and and the estate is uh, today sort of dry apart from the cafes and restaurants etc that are on Calvert Avenue so the whole anti-drink thing kind of dovetailed with the whole you know urge to get decent social housing
2: okay that's interesting that tells us something i guess about the uh, different economic balance that we have now because pubs are collapsing left right and center people aren't going to the pub meanwhile our housing cost is going up and up no i
3: hadn't actually thought of that that's that's true i suppose we're all drinking at home aren't we (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in our lovely, expensive little studio flats that we have to share with seventeen other people
2: we' huddled around a can of tenants and <laughs> yeah, nine exactly. straws. Yeah. Yeah. what would people in the rookery be doing both you know if they, if they're earning money, how are they earning it and what 's the line between somebody who 's going to end up in a rookery and someone who isn 't? <laughs>
3: Well, the old nickel is probably quite typical, um, and when I sort of delved into it, there were 5,700 people living here at the time that the LCC came and pulled it down, um, of whom forty four percent were under the age of 15. And I think that's a major change we would notice if we could go back in time. Um, how young London was. I mean, it was packed with kids and teenagers. A slum like this also would have a disproportionate number of old people because of who, of course, who are going to be poor, children. Old people. It also had more single female headed households than were average across working class and lower middle class districts. Many of these women were struggling not just to bring up their children but also other dependents, such as relatives who were chronically ill or disabled, maybe their aged parents as well. So, astonishing women who are just keeping four or five people afloat in their little hovel, doing revolting jobs 16 hours a day for diminishing wages. Just astonishing tales of heroism. So uh, many of the husbands, they were either widows, or perhaps their husband had deserted them, perhaps he was in prison. So you do see lots and lots of female-headed families, which were much less typical elsewhere. I often wonder now whether what, and slum in general, I know the old nickel in particular, I think the process goes like this. Something goes wrong in your life, really badly wrong, and you can't afford to live anywhere else, so you move here or to another slum, which is the cheapest property you can possibly afford. I think about the cheapest you would pay is something like two shillings for a really nasty little basement running with damp. If you can't afford that or your life goes even further wrong, your next choice is the common lodging house, of which there were two very large ones in the Old nickel, and there were loads and loads in Whitechapel. So you can think of it like a hostel today, except hostels are, are sort of properly run and probably have some kind of charitable input. These were private enterprises. So that's your next step where you you're lucky if you get a... A bunk or a box or a mattress to to, to sleep on and it's charged by the night, classically tuppence a night if you can't even manage that for whatever reason, your next choice is twofold, you've got the gutter which was actually preferable in many Cockneys minds to the workhouse the workhouse was where nobody wanted to end up because of course what you were doing there was giving up all your independence you're more or less Shrugging his shoulders, that's it, I can't cope.
2: What was the trade? What were you doing? How does the workhouse function?
3: You go indoors and it's not quite prison, but it's the next worst thing. If you simply cannot fend for yourself financially, you have a bed and you are fed three meals a day, but you're basically inside. Uh, You can't leave. People can visit, but you're more or less in in uh well the nickname for them was the bastille and you gave up all independence you had absolutely nothing of your own and yes in the old days you would do a task of work while you were in there but actually in fact in the 1880s and 1890s if you went into the classic london workhouses it's packed out with the aforementioned people people who are chronically ill disabled elderly Thousands and thousands of children in there. One of the worst things that it did was it split up families. So if a husband and wife couldn't cope, they were segregated. So you give up your rented home. All your furniture would be sold in order to recoup any costs. So you had nothing. You didn't even have your family anymore. You do read tales in coroner's, coroner's reports in the newspapers of people deciding to take their own life before that step. And people wonder, well, why would anybody be a tramp or a vagrant? Well, at least a tramp and a vagrant has their freedom, they have their mobility, and they do have their independence, and many people would rather uh, have become a tramp or a street prostitute than give it all up and become a prisoner of the state just for being poor.
2: I suddenly understand this dimension to um, a lot of Victorian... It's usually fiction, but it's stuff that's uh, purporting to portray lower end Victorian life realistically and there's always this pride that's in the mix there somewhere and suddenly that falls into focus
3: for what it's worth Charles Booth and other people kind of coming up with the same conclusion is what they thought about the London poor what they wanted more than anything if you can generalize was to be their own boss to be their own master in whatever little trade it was they'd undertaken I mentioned all the categories of poverty in the old nickel, but in fact, most people uh, most adults, including women, were working very, very hard one fifth of people who lived here were employed in the furniture trade, bashing together all sorts of um, you know cupboards and shelves and whatnots and this, that and the other to sell down at the curtain Road Shoreditch emporia so Manufacture was huge here. Shoe, boots and textile manufacture were the next biggest employers. But what you also had in these sort of horrible little rooms was really high-quality artisan work being done, particularly in the metalwork trades uh, and all sorts of specialised woodwork. Women, if they got a lucky break, were particularly adept at French polishing furniture. And one one of the men who grew up here, he said... Every hooligan in the nickel always wanted to get himself hitched to a French polishing woman because then you'd never have to work yourself, you know, because she earns so well. So this idea of it being full of sort of loafers and layabouts and thugs is it, it, not right. Uh, oh, the other thing that was, there was still very picturesquely, the remnants of the Huguenot weavers. So you had particularly elderly people turning out this amazing quality silks and satins and all sorts of fabrics that... Uh, were the best quality in in continental Europe. And apparently even the Pope and even the English royal family um, sourced some of their fabrics from old nickel weavers because the quality was still outstanding. The problem there was that these specialised artisan work, there was lesser and lesser market for it. And you have great big emporia such as maples and heels in the West End parceling out their work to such garrets, but for lower and lower wages. Um, So you had a real squeeze on wages of people who were extremely talented and hard-working, Um, which obviously you have the early attempts at unionisation in the 80s and 90s, always much less successful in London than elsewhere in the country. But that's one of the things that unions were trying to fight, to stop this endless depression of wages and the, the lengthening of hours but as i say i think most companies if you ask them they didn't want to be employed particularly by anybody they wanted to do their own thing get a fair price for it i think it's that love of independence uh amongst the uh working classes that kind of slightly baffled many left-leaning people who wanted them to join in unions they didn't quite get If you want to be your own boss, then does that mean you're not going to be quite so willing to join with other workers to campaign together? I mean, obviously that changed in the early 20th century uh, and people did uh, come on board with that whole idea. But London did prove quite hard to unionise outside of things like the Dockers, for example.
2: And we could maybe open up a conversation about the proliferation of self-employed and one or two person businesses that's going on at the moment. Is that symptom of something rather dark? I don't know, but we haven't got time to, so we won't, be, <laughs> we won't be going down that road. And in fact, we're coming quite close to the end of things here. I'm delighted to say that Mr John Allport remains in his original position. Well, not his original position, his final position. Um, you've, you've been down there. You? I'm, when I say down there, I'm talking about this little archway with its inscription. It's only about three and a half feet tall. What's down there?
3: It's a collection of old lead coffins that kind of look rather disrespectfully all shoved in together. I don't think that's how it was. Yeah, they're
2: not on shelves or anything, they're not are, they're are they?
3: On the shelves as in the Kensal or, or, or Highgate. It does look a bit of a jumble in there, but as I understand it, as I've had it explained to me, these are lead coffins of the wealthy and they're all still in there apparently. Yeah, listening to us.
2: Well, at least somebody is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we've got to come to a close. What what are you working on at the moment? I know St Giles features in it. What are you working on? Can you say?
3: Yeah, no, I've just... um, I've sort of turned my attention to Soho in the 19th century. Funnily enough, nothing like as easy to research as the East End. It had... Well, St Giles obviously was the great big slum, and there's quite a bit on that, but... um, The other side of uh, what is now Charing Cross Road, Soho proper, similar sort of argument going on. Very, very, very highly skilled manufacturing people, artisans, also known as the aristocracy of labour, struggling against mass importation of luxury goods, Great big shops and warehouses forcing prices down. So i I'm, I'm kind of shifted my interest over to the West. Everybody thinks, oh, well, there was this East-West dichotomy. But in fact, you found some dreadful pockets of... Political struggle over there in Soho. So that's kind of what I'm into at the moment. And then at some point I must leave London. I, uh, my, I must uh, <laughs> a terrible sort of you know London-centric history focus. i ought to start looking at other other places.
2: I think on this podcast we can we can put up with the London yeah, focus for the time being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. tolerate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a reminder of your website and your titles. Yeah. Uh, what would you like the listener to rush out and purchase?
3: Well, have a look at my website, SarahWise.co.uk. And the book I wrote about the old nickel is called The Blackest Streets. The book I wrote about an area just north of the nickel, um, today's Columbia Road, is the Italian boy, a very nasty case of kind of Birkenhead style murdering to supply the surgeons. And then my my latest one ended up being about wealthy people. I hadn't expected it to be, but it was. Inconvenient people, and it's about all the poor people who got put away into luxury private lunatic asylums simply because they're... Spouse or their family wanted to get their hands on their money,
2: and all of these crafted, of course, in a fine artisanal style in your garret.
3: Crafted in my little cupboard on the Tottenham Court Road, my rent, my rented home. I'm generation rent, although alas, older than most of them. Yes, uh, crafted in increasingly unremunerative (laughs) self-employment. Please bring back social housing, so someone like so Sarah can have a chance.
2: (laughs) If you want to give ten pounds to Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're at the end of things. Sarah Wise, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Sarah Wise. Thanks, too, to John Allport and Bernie Barclay. Theme and in incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolf. We
1: don't tie to